0: This is 15 Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15 Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin.
1: Hi, I'm Joan Neuberger, editor of Not Even Past and professor in the Department of History at UT Austin. And our guest today is John Moran Gonzalez, who teaches in the English department and the Center for Mexican American Studies here at UT Austin. Welcome to 15 Minute History, John.
0: Hello. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: So our topic today is the Borderlands War that took place between 1915 and 1920 approximately on the border between Texas and Mexico. Could you start with a sort of definition or an outline of what happened?
0: Well, essentially, it was a period of violence in which there was an undeclared war between the Anglo-Texan and Mexican-American communities in which there was violence perpetrated by both sides. But The brunt of the violence was directed by the state and local authorities against the Mexican-American population.
1: What made this period so violent? What was the situation at the time?
0: Well, the context for this was the rapid change in the economy, a ranching economy dominated by Mexican-Americans into a farming economy dominated by newcomer Anglo-Texans. The rapid changeover during the previous 10 to 20 years had resulted in a displacement of the old order, the old uh, Mexican-American order along the border, with a new Jim Crow-style segregation.
1: So under the ranching economy, was there more cooperation, or were there fewer Anglos?
0: There were certainly fewer Anglos coming to the border region prior to the turn of the century, prior to the arrival of the railroad in this region in 1904. And so those Anglos who did come in tended to intermarry into established Mexican-American ranching families and became essentially Mexicanized. After that, the number of newcomers coming in with decidedly different views about Mexican racial inferiority went there to exploit uh, cheap land and cheap labor.
1: Who were the main targets of the violence?
0: Well, the main targets of the violence were the general Mexican-American population of the area who were often perceived to be in cahoots with raiders and other guerrilla fighters who were against the changes that had occurred.
1: Mm -hmm. And about how many people were killed during this violence, do you know? Well,
0: estimates are very hard to come by precisely because many of the incidents were covered up by those who perpetrated them, particularly those of law enforcement So the estimates range from a low of three to five hundred to three to five thousand, which was a figure that Walter Prescott Webb, the hagiographer of the Texas Rangers, came up with in his uh, 1935 history of the Rangers.
1: Why did the violence escalate at this point?
0: The violence escalated because the Mexican Americans of that region, who had been displaced from their place within the economy and society of the region, very much resented the new racial order imposed upon them by the Anglo newcomers. They were disenfranchised in terms of their social status, they were disenfranchised literally in terms of their votes, as white only primaries became the norm, and therefore they saw their power ebbing away. And so this built up a great deal of resentment with the new order.
1: And did the state of Texas play a role in supporting or trying to limit the violence? Were they on a particular side?
0: Well, the state authorities, particularly as embodied by the Rangers, were some of the perpetrators of the worst violence here. Extrajudicial killings of Mexican-Americans were by the rangers was quite common in this period, and often taking the form of shot dead, attempting to flee kind of scenarios. So the rangers were very much part of the problem, rather than an attempt to ameliorate the situation. And certain segments of the uh, newcomer community very much welcomed what they saw as putting the local Mexican population into their proper place. There were lynchings, there were shootings in the back of, of various people, and otherwise decapitations, mutilation of the body. There was one instance in which bottles were inserted into the mouths of those who were executed. So the violence was extreme, as well as the kind of symbolism attached to it was equally extreme.
1: One Texas paper you quote is saying, that this was a good thing because there was a serious surplus population that needed eliminating. Was that a widespread sentiment?
0: It was to the extent that the Mexican population was viewed as a kind of necessary evil. That is, on one hand, many newcomers came to that region of Texas expecting to be able to use a cheap labor force for their economic endeavors. And on the other hand, they represented a threat because of their ability to vote. And hence, the idea of a surplus population that needed trimming was really an expression of this latter sentiment.
1: Mm -hmm. Can you give us some examples of some of the things that happened?
0: Yes. Really, the summer of 1915, particularly the months of August through October, saw the height, the most intense violence in the region. In one instance, in late September of 1915, there was a clash between Texas Rangers and about 40 Mexican-American Rangers in Hidalgo County, where Rangers took a dozen prisoners and promptly hung them, and their bodies were left to rot for days. In another instance, that same month, Texas Ranger Captain Henry Ransom shot landowners Jesus Bazan and Antonio Longoria, once again leaving their bodies out in the open to rot. And at one point, Ransom reported to Ranger headquarters in Austin that, quote, I drove all the Mexicans from three ranches.
1: Did state officials just turn a blind eye to the violence in the sense that they supported it, or were there investigations? What was the state's role here?
0: Well, the Rangers had received clear signals from the governor's office and other authorities that they had a free reign to handle or control the situation as they saw fit, that is a clear sign that no one would be prosecuted for any extrajudicial killings, in other words. These depredations only came to a stop when Brownsville's state representative, J.T. Canales, initiated an investigation of the Ranger force and their actions over the previous decade in 1919.
1: So why would the Rangers a force that was created to protect the residents of Texas, commit this violence against Mexican-Americans?
0: Essentially, they were in the service of consolidating the kind of new white supremacist order in South Texas. That is essentially the purpose of the violence, was to send a clear signal that Mexican-Americans would be dealt with harshly if they attempted any opposition to this new order, or whether through the ballot box or by other means.
1: So this was all happening on the border with Mexico. Did the Mexican government play any role in what was going on?
0: Well, the Mexican government did not have a direct role in this because the country was in the middle of a revolution. (laughs) There was a constant instability upon which faction controlled which parts of the border. It was more the climate of instability that allowed Raiders to cross back and forth across the Rio Grande with impunity and created a sense of siege by the uh, Anglo community in this part of South Texas.
1: Can you say anything about the Raiders themselves, that is the people who were resisting changes taking place in the economy and then eventually the violence being perpetrated on them by the Rangers and other forces?
0: Well, this group is often referred to as los sediciosos, or the seditious ones, and they attempted to essentially oust the new Anglo order by these guerrilla raids upon ranches, uh, the derailing of a train near Brownsville, and these sorts of actions. But they were very much constrained by the small number of raiders, as well as the state's overwhelming use of force against them.
1: So you said that the violence finally subsided when State Representative Canales called for an investigation of the Rangers in 1919. And that's the conventional ending of the violence. Did it continue after that?
0: Well, in fact, it did. I mean, I think the most egregious episode was the Porvenir massacre in West Texas in 1918 when rangers executed uh, 15 Mexican men, separated them from their families, and then executed them. Now, I have to say the role of the U.S. Army was crucial here in beginning to tamp down the extrajudicial actions of the rangers and local vigilantes. Mm Mm-hmm. What did they do? Essentially, they very much saw the rangers and the local sheriffs as part of the problem, as continuing the violence rather than defusing it. And Mexican-Americans began to see the, the federal government in the guise of the U.S. Army as being on their side, essentially, in some respects.
1: So we have this very complicated picture where we have a changing economy, we have a revolution going on south of the border, We have people trying to make a living, a small group of people violently resisting the changes, and then representatives of the state of Texas coming in and trying to suppress them, but also carrying out violence against people randomly as well. What was the response of other people? Was there any sort of peace movement or was there any cooperation among newcomers, Anglos, other European settlers, and the Mexican-Americans there? How did other people respond? Yes,
0: it was a complicated picture because certainly there were Tejanos who were aiding the the rangers and other parties in the suppression of the Mexican-American community. And on the other hand, there were Anglo settlers who were very much appalled at the violence that was getting perpetrated against the local communities. One of them was Brownsville lawyer and historian Frank Cushman Pierce, who compiled a list of 102 victims entirely on his own time. Then he also confronted Launce Hill, who was one of the major developers of Harlingen, Texas, about his role in these incidents.
1: In supporting the rangers and supporting the violence? Yes. What then are some of the short-term consequences of this violence? It must have been incredibly disruptive.
0: Absolutely. The, The violence in the Lower Rio Grande Valley in particular resulted in the depopulation of rural areas as Mexican-American residents fled to the relative safety of border towns or crossed into Mexico for safety. This only accelerated the transfer of land to newcomer Anglos as Mexican-Americans abandoned their lands. This also had implications for Mexican-Americans from this area as they were drafted into military service for the First World War. They resisted These summons to serve precisely because they could not reconcile the violence visited upon them by the United States with service in the same military that they saw as part of the problem. Mm -hmm. And they were termed slackers in the language of the day for allegedly slacking off their duty as patriotic citizens. And one other implication was that Walter Prescott Webb essentially launched his career, academic career. In reaction to the Canales investigation, he wrote his 1922 master's thesis as an apology for the role of the Rangers during this period and later transformed that piece into the, his hagiography of the Rangers, the 1935 Texas Rangers, a century of frontier defense, which is still a perennial bestseller for the University of Texas Press.
1: Yes, as one of the founders of the history department at the University of Texas, I think my first office was his original office. What are some of the long-term consequences of the violence?
0: This event tremendously impacted the development of Mexican-American civil rights organizations. So during the 1920s, Mexican-Americans began to organize in new ways, in new kind of political and civic organizations devoted to the promotion of Mexican-American civil rights, The exemplary one from this period would be the League of United Latin American Citizens, or LULAC, which formed in 1929. LULAC emphasized the idea that Mexican-Americans had to cement their political allegiance to the United States rather than to Mexico because the United States would be the nation that would protect them from any future violence directed against them. This was the cultural project of this civil rights organization.
1: So this is a really fascinating history that people don't know much about. And I know that you got involved because you're involved in the group that's putting on an exhibit about the Borderlands War at the Bullock Museum of Texas History, right? Can you tell us a little bit about that and what its purpose is? Yes, it's called Life on the Border,
0: 1910 to 1920, and the purpose is to raise the public's awareness of this incident and the major role it it has had in shaping Mexican-American life in Texas. And the role of the state in perpetrating this violence is something that we as a group had wanted to specifically highlight with this project, with the goal of making connections with questions of policing communities of color, which are obviously relevant today.
1: Well, we're really looking forward to that exhibit. And hopefully you're hoping to have it after it's run at the Bullock to travel around Texas to the borderland region, but also to the rest of Texas to bring this story to the population.
0: We're hoping to take it nationally.
1: Even better. (laughs) Thanks a lot, John.
0: Thank you. You can find a transcript of this episode, along with supplemental documents, suggestions for further reading, and correlations to this Texas and National Educational Standards for History and Geography on our website, blogs.utexas.edu backslash 15-minute history. That's the numerals 1-5-minute history. You can also find a link to suggest topics for upcoming episodes. The University of Texas at Austin is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in episodes of 15-minute history do not represent the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.